This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Just kidding. We aren't live. Well, we are alive, aren't we? At any rate, as of this recording on Wednesday, June 28th, after having his guts placed uh, snugly back in place, God's favorite radio and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, is alive and well. Well, well is a strange term, really. He's recovering, not in any uh, sort of danger, uh, at least as of my last update, according to his uh, awesome partner. Uh, The pain for our boy is pretty bad, despite a liberal administration of pain medication. I mean, how could it not be? After having someone dig around in your insides, in your core region, an area crucial to just about every physical movement, as well as a lot of non-movements, things like sitting up, can become excruciatingly painful, and it sounds like that's the case. If you're listening, Chuck, hope your pain situation's improving. Chuck wants to thank all the listeners for the well wishes that have been coming in uh, from all of you out there in radio and podcast land. If you haven't pieced it together yet, or just don't recognize my voice, I've only been on the show a few months at this point. Uh, This is producer Will Ippen coming to you from the cozy confines of Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge. At 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Unfortunately, you all are stuck with me for the next couple of weeks until Chuck's triumphant return. And triumphant it will be. Chuck's ordeal has me curious. And based on what you all have been writing on our social media and on our Patreon pages, has you curious as well about how our boy will turn out after his hopefully last surgery ever. Which brings us to this week's question from hell, in which we ask and you answer question that's been on everyone's mind what superpower do you hope chuck has after his surgery that is what superpower do you hope chuck has after his surgery i'll have some of your witty and at times wonderfully sick responses after the interview listener whose answer we or in the case of the next couple of weeks I like best that's right it's not fair that I get to 
solely decide this, but uh, I'm drunk with power over here in the producer booth. And with great power comes great responsibility. A certain Spider-Man or Spitterman once said, uh, the winner I choose will, as always, win their choice of This Is Hell Swag. I'll announce the winner at the end of the next episode of This Is Hell, where we will also hear from longtime contributor Jeffrey Dorshin in his moment of truth. More on that later. You can check out all of our merch we have on offer by visiting our website at thisishell.com. There you can not only browse, covet, maybe even buy our conversation starting merch to support the show. You can also access nearly 1,000 episodes and more than twice that number of interviews going back to 2015. Back when Chuck used to do four to five hour live radio marathons on WNUR before we moved to the current format. And if you can't get enough of uh, our content, both new and archival, you can access even more by supporting This Is Hell on Patreon. Members get immediate access to over 350 Patreon podcasts that you can only find there. You also get a $5 discount on all merch and the first crack at answering the question from hell. As well as the raw power to submit any question from hell you want to our recently unherniated show host Chuck Mertz during our Thursday Patreon episodes. Each week, I, or occasionally uh, one of the other producers who might happen to be filling in for Patreon, uh, get to pick and read uh, a patron's question from hell for Chuck. How cool is that? I know I feel drunk with power when I get to ask it, but you guys are even more powerful. You get to actually write these things. And so far, you have not disappointed. Although we would like to see more content coming in. Um, I get nervous whenever the backlog shrinks down to a certain number. Um, Chuck has no idea what the question will be when I ask it, and I must admit I draw great pleasure from watching Chuck uh, squirm in the interview booth on the other side of the glass as he tries to answer listeners' hellish questions. Again, keep these coming. And as always, listeners, we deeply appreciate your support, especially me. Your Patreon contributions are how Cat, Dan, along with past and present fill-in producers, uh, get paid to produce the show. Your continued support allows us to keep creating radio and podcasts that cover issues and voices 
you aren't likely to hear covered in necessary depth or context in corporate media, if they cover them at all. Sadly, that same sad and mediocre by design prerogatives of the corporate media in late capitalism held true even back in 2007. Indeed, the media landscape we live in now was in many ways being formed back then. And this particular episode comes to us from July 7th, 2007. When S. Derek Turner joined Chuck to talk about the state of political talk radio. He discussed the study his group, Free Press, uh, had done with help from the Center for American Progress about the state of political talk radio. The title of this study, The Structural Imbalance of Talk Radio, um, will be included in our the uh, a link to this study will be included in our show notes. Report shows how the right wing's grip on the airwaves is because of a failed market, not a conservative cultural revolution that they would have you believe. The right always likes to try to get us to believe that the volume of their voice, bolstered as it is by corporate money and the hijacking of religion, somehow represents a mass movement. I'll see you on the flip side, where I will read some of your many outstanding responses to this week's question from hell. What superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? And when I will also give you a little teaser about what Jeff Dorchin will be covering in his moment of truth during the next episode, as well as a preview of things to come. This is hell. On the line with us right now is research director S. Derek Turner. He's going to be on this morning to tell us about the study his group Free Press has done with the Center for American Progress. The study is called The Structural Imbalance of Political Talk Radio. The report shows how the right wing's grip on the airwaves is not because of the reasons you think it is. Uh, is it S. Derek? Is it S. Is it Derek? What do you want me to call you? Uh, you can just call me Derek. The, right. the, the S to sort of distinguish myself from uh, there's a famous uh, British author named Derek Turner. So. Oh, okay. So Derek is on the line with us, not S. 
just Derek Turner's online with us. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had on this guy who was getting us all worried about the end of internet radio, which I think got a reprieve, but there's still the possibility that it can happen. And he was saying how internet radio is listened to by tons of people, yet uh, with over-the-air radio, more than 90% of Americans ages 12 or older listen to radio each week. According to uh, the introduction to your uh, uh, your study, a higher penetration than television, magazines, newspapers, or the internet. Although listening hours have uh, declined slightly in recent years, Americans listen to, on average, to 19 hours of radio every week in 2006. So the, er- the radio waves are still something to fight over. It's not a dying, do-nothing media. Because that, the impression that we're being given uh, the mainstream media in the mainstream media and conventional wisdom today is now you've got the internet, now you've got iPods, now you can burn CDs, now you can download songs, now you can uh, watch cable TV, now you can uh, you know put it on uh, the uh, music channels on on your cable system, so you don't even have to listen to commercials, and it's all commercial free music. Uh, so the the conventional wisdom is that nobody's listening to radio anymore how important is radio still in americans making doing their opinion making well it's extremely important i mean you're right in the sense that there's there's a lot more options for people to do today there's ipods there's cd players but you know there were tape players 20 years ago and eight tracks before that the, the the simple fact is americans are just consuming more media and, and not consuming uh, less of any given type radio overwhelmingly has huge importance in people's lives when they're driving to work and when they're coming home from work, stuck in their ever-lengthening commutes uh, in the metropolitan areas around the country. So, And increasingly, talk radio is becoming much more important. Uh, the number of talk radio stations has just blown up in the, in the past decade, and uh, particularly the number of conservative-only talk radio stations has, has, really, has really increased. And overwhelmingly, people in their, in their busy lives are working later. They're not getting home in time to watch the local evening news. And so they'll either listen to an all-news station or an all-talk station, and that's that's where they're getting some of their primary sources of news. You know, uh, when you were talking about um, the number of formats that are out there and that news talk is the number one format in the country, uh, combined news talk format is estimated to reach more than 50 million listeners each week. That's, you know, like one in six Americans. But the, the biggest format is still country music. So what this tells me is, as you were saying, you know, people listen in their commute. Uh, people uh, listen to a lot of country music. Uh, the demogra- demographics I'm starting to see here, and I could be, you know, jumping to conclusions. My implications could be way off base. But I'm, what I'm starting to see is a very red state crowd. Isn't the conservative radio, conservative talk radio that we hear on so many news talk formats due to the fact that they are accurately uh, representing their constituency, that the people who listen to these stations are often very red state, very con- uh, conservative. They spend more time in their cars. So they spend more because they have to travel farther to their work. So they uh, listen to more radio. They listen to country music. That's kind of a red state flag. Isn't this just about accurately representing your constituency? Well, I mean, of course, there's some of that, because these broadcasters are in the business to make money, but it's essentially a myth that that the market is is driving this alone. I mean, when you look at actually the the demographics of who listens to talk radio, it's it's only a plurality for for conservative uh, demographics. It's very closely trailed by by, uh, people claiming to be liberal and people claiming to be moderate or, or almost essentially equal. So there's no, there's no, re- I mean, in our report we found that 
uh, of the biggest station owners, the guys who like CBS and, and Clear Channel own stations all across the country, they're airing 91% conservative talk radio to just 9% uh, progressive talk radio. You have markets like Philadelphia, which is a you know kind of a hotbed of liberalism. Uh, there, there's not a single minute of progressive talk radio on the station, and I, I really find it hard to believe that there's no demand for that. I mean, in your own town, uh, WCPT, uh, who, who AM, who's doing uh, uh, the Air America format, the Air America stuff, they don't really have a big strength. Their, their, their signal's pretty weak. Uh, they're they're definitely blasted out by the CBS channel there, uh, WCKG and WVON, the Clear Channel stations. But yet, in the rating chair, they're actually doing almost as well as those two big talk radio stations, the CBS and Clear Channel stations, who only air conservative talk radio. So what we're seeing is, is that when it's actually put on the air, it's doing quite well. And the, the, the main conclusion of our report is is that the reason there's such a dearth of liberal talk radio and the reason there's such progress, or, uh, conservative talk radio is primarily because of the structure of the media and the structure of ownership rules, which have allowed these big, giant companies like Clear Channel and Citadel and CBS and Salem to get so big, and it has changed the economics of the radio industry to where it's just fundamentally cheaper for them to syndicate these huge, large uh, blocks of shows and programming. So, for example, if, you wanna, if you're starting a station and you want to you wanna pick up Rush Limbaugh, because he's very popular and you know he'll attract listeners, the, the, the syndicator, who's a subsidiary of Clear Channel, will say, okay, you can have Rush, and we'll give them to you at a discount, but you have to put them on 10 stations at least at minimum. And if you're going to take Rush, you're going to have to take Glenn Beck, and you're going to have to take Matt Drudge and all those stations as well. So it's sort of like a subsidy or a welfare for these other conservative talk show programmers uh, when you don't really have that for the progressive ones. Just because the progressive ones don't have the same amount of capital. Well, essentially, and and, and it's, it's, it's that it, there's just been, uh, you know, conservatives were... were Better out the gate at this format, I think the progressives were, and there, you know, there is some, there's some truth to the fact that there's a bias in some of their owners. Uh, like for instance, the Salem Radio Corporation is, is run by, uh, you know, avid, out in the open sort of right wing Christians, and and they they don't put any progressives on any of their radio stations because that's not really what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, our report overwhelmingly found a very strong relationship between the type of programming aired, and who the owner is. So, for instance, if you're a local owner, you're much less likely to air conservative programming. If you're a minority or ethnic minority owner, you're much less likely to air conservative programming and much more likely to air progressive programming. The same is true for women. And most importantly, if you're a big, large group owner, if you own more than three stations in a single market or stations in multiple markets, you are overwhelmingly more likely to air conservative programming and less likely to air progressive programming. So these are these are natural trends. That, that we see, and the evidence is pretty clear that what's causing this is not a market effect, but it's, 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 uh, it's a structural effect of the media. You know, Derek, the thing that, even, that surprises me is that any uh, commercial station has any kind of content that, that either one of us could define as progressive talk. And the only reason I'm saying this is because it would not, the, uh, the types of issues that might be brought up during a progressive talk show, and I'm not saying this, these kind of topics are brought up in every progressive talk show. I mean, it, look at Ed Schultz, that would be a perfect example for where it, this kind of stuff wouldn't be heard. Um, but there is the possibility that debates will occur that do not conform with the ideas of the corporate leadership that run that station. So it 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 amazes me that they'll even take the chance with progressive talk radio that it that it would seem like the built-in the inherent problem here is that corporations run by people who have a certain philosophy on the world around them 
have control over the over certain outlets in the airwaves, and therefore they don't want anybody on who has a differing opinion from theirs. I mean, isn't that what that what this mostly comes down to? Is that progressive talk programming could differ in opinion from that of the ownership of that station? Well, I mean, that's exactly right, and that's what the evidence shows. I mean, the the more stations you own, the larger of a corporation you are. The, you're, the more or less likely you are to air progressive programming and the more likely you are to air conservative programming. So there's a definite statistical effect there that we see. And I think it's borne out and, and supported by your theory that, that you know, some of these progressive, especially some of the local progressive hosts, are, are talking about local issues that, in, in a way that appeals to, to their viewers or to their listeners, but it's not necessarily going to toe the corporate line. So that's why you're not going to have that type of, of content on a, on a station run by CBS who not only owns 140 radio stations all across the country, but they own, uh, you know, a giant network. They own production studios. They own uh, television stations. So they have large advertising contracts, and and you know their their breadth of speech that they can that they can put on the air is sort of limited by those commercial constraints. Where whereas that, this is why fundamentally we think we need to restore localism in, in broadcasting because when you get more localism, you have owners who are a lot less likely to to really care. Uh, what some big corporation thinks, because they're mainly selling advertisements to to local businesses, uh, local grocery stores, local car car dealers, and things like that. So we think fundamentally, you know, the the ownership uh, regulations at the FCC need to be sort of rolled back to where they were a couple decades ago. Uh, when localism was one of the top priorities of broadcasters. Uh, you mentioned uh, WCPT here in Chicago, uh, Chicago's progressive talker, as it's called. And you said how WVON and WCKG, their signals can obstruct the signal that's coming out of Rockford from uh, where they're located. But yet you still said that they are able to compete in uh, ratings-wise. And here is a uh, progressive talk radio format. And it's actually competing with WCKG, which is a uh, fairly conservative uh, talk radio format. Um, but, you know, the signal is so bad. It's really hard to get it. And so for those who are supporters of progressive talk radio, I think that they could, you know, uh, find solace in the fact that it's even competing with WCKG because the signal is so poor. But at the same time, those numbers might also be inflated by the fact that it's one of the few places that does have a progressive format here in Chicago. So, I mean, are, are things you know, it seems like they, they could be their numbers might be exaggerated because people are desperate for that kind of content, but they also might be under exaggerated because of the poor signal. I mean, how would you say so far? How is Air America doing nationally? You know, the big joke within the right wing talk radio is that it's a complete failure and has had no success in competing with uh, right wing talkers. Well, I mean, Air America is is sort of an interesting business model in the sense that it was. Let's let's start an entire network that has all progressive content, and then let's go out and try to find stations that'll put us on. And it's not sort of the ground up way that most most of these talk radio hosts sort of started. I mean, like you know, look at Hannity's career or look at Limbaugh. You know, they didn't start out trying to get national carriage. It just sort of became that way. So it's it's not a really good business model to point to as a success or failure for the format of progressive talk radio. Uh, I think it, it was, you know, Air America was maybe begun as sort of a reaction to, to you know, the discourse on the radio and it's sort of urgent need to do something about it. Um, I don't think Air America alone is the, is the fix to this problem. Whether or not they're, they're successful or not, I don't think uh, is, is the final judgment on the demand for progressive talk radio. Fundamentally, what we advocate for in the report is 
is not less speech or trying to balance out speech through any kind of regulation. We just want to to change uh, to change the radio marketplace to back to the way it was when it was essentially a local medium controlled by local owners who were who were you know catering to the needs of their local community. So, for instance, a couple decades ago, a radio license holder had to renew their license every three years through a process of comparative hearings where they had to advertise the fact that their license was coming up and invite the public out to a hearing to let them air their grievances and tell them how, how they were serving their community, whether or not they were getting the type of programming they, they demanded. Now, you know, flash forward 20 years later, it's, a, it's an eight-year renewal process. Every eight years they renew it. And it's, they, all they do is mail in a postcard, and the FCC essentially gives it a rubber stamp and approves it. There's no comparative hearings anymore. If someone has filed a grievance, it usually just gets filed away in a cabinet, and, and no one ever really even takes note of it. So that's essentially lost our our ability as as you know, local citizens to to have a say on what happens over our local airways. Because we have to remember, these are our airways; they're not owned by anyone. They're sort of a natural resource that we are giving these broadcasters the right to use for commercial purposes, and they make you know industry wide, they're making billions of dollars a year. Uh, so we think it's not unreasonable to ask for a little bit in return in the, in the sense of public interest obligations and service to the public and local community. Right. And you talk about this uh, public stewardship kind of idea of the public airways has to uh, reemerge. But it's not right now. The FCC, either through a lack of enforcement due to underfunding, uh, underfunding or a lack of a political will, both from the Republican and Democratic side, uh, the FCC is not doing is not playing the role that it's supposed to be playing. Can that role change, and can we turn it back into a situation where uh, the community and the people are involved and are public stewards of the airwaves again, in light of the fact that uh, campaign finances are, uh, you know, uh, campaigns are more uh, dependent on uh, financial contributions than ever before, and big media has a huge chunk of money to make through advertising dollars as well as through uh, their lobbying contacts in Washington, D.C. So uh, can we put the public stewardship back into the public airwaves, uh, which is, you know, rightfully, you know, constitutionally, legally supposed to be there when we have that much of an obstacle in light of a lack of campaign finance reform uh, to deal with nowadays? Well, the answer is yes, but the, uh, the the downside is it's going to be really hard. And I'm glad you mentioned lobbying because, you know, I, I live and work in D.C. and I can just tell you how disgusting it is uh, when you get close to it. I mean, these local broadcasters, especially uh, local television broadcasters, uh, they make most of their revenue off of campaign ads, and they funnel a lot of that back into the National Association of Broadcasters, their lobbying arm, who is one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington. And, you know, essentially most lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are afraid to move unless the NAB says it's okay. So, we're we're up we're back against the wall. We're up against a very powerful organized force here. But fundamentally, the power of the people, uh, you know, is in numbers, is, is strength in numbers, and I think that's where sort of the internet as a tool is going to help us out. So, yes, we can return it to the public steward model. The FCC currently has some power to do some of that on their own, but I think ultimately what it's going to, what's going to take is some congressional action. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, in 2003, Colin Powell's son, Michael Powell, was, was the chairman of the FCC and sort of in the dead of night tried to push through a bunch of favorable regulations that would have completely changed our local media marketplace and essentially handed over what's left to, to the corporations. Uh, that was met with a fierce public backlash. Uh, you know, millions of people wrote to the FCC, you know, and who even knew that they even knew what FCC even stood for or what they did 
But people rose up. People wrote to the FCC. They used online organizing tools to do that. Congress took note on both sides of the aisle, and legislation started moving. Ultimately, these rules were were thrown out in court and and pushed back to the FCC, who is now once again here here starting the process to look at these rule changes again. This still led by a, a very conservative uh, person now, his name Kevin Martin. He he actually was on the Bush transition team down in Florida, uh, who who's now in control of the FCC. He used to work for a law, uh, a law firm that that lobbied for broadcasters. So he's very much uh, you know on their side and wants to do what they want to do. But he's a lot more cautious and careful than Michael Powell was. So they're going to take their time. They're going to be slow about it. So this is now the chance for for local people to get involved. And it's good that I'm on on your show today because. It's not confirmed yet, but we think sometime in late August or early September that the FCC is actually going to hold a hearing in Chicago on the issue of its media ownership rules. And uh, if your listeners want to find out more about that, they can just stay tuned to freepress.net or stopbigmedia.com. We'll have all the information there. That's going to be a big chance for people to come out and, and say what they feel about their local their, their local media in Chicago and how it is or is not serving them. And I just want to repeat those uh, websites again, freepress.net and stopbigmedia.com. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, you, I get emails from people who are involved in community media organizations, uh, independent media groups, alternative media groups, uh, media watch organizations, workshops, whatever, all these different people who are somehow loosely connected to or directly involved with uh, this so-called national media reform movement. At times, they'll contact me and ask uh, ask me uh, what you know. What can we do for you for to help your show? What can we do for you? And I never even respond much to these emails, except for when I'm talking about it on the air, um, because what they can do for me isn't shouldn't be the important thing. And so I guess that my question to you is, what should the media reform movement be doing right now in order to combat this uh, the reality of, of the situation right now where we have uh, uh, rules by the FCC that are not enforced? Uh, we have lost the idea of public stewardship of the public airwaves. What would you suggest that the media reform movement do today in order to uh, get things to the conclusions that you hope will happen through this study that you've done? Well, there's many moving parts, and it's not very easy. But I, you know, I would say that online organizing tools have made made it a lot easier for one voice to combine with many to to sort of you know raise awareness of issues and actually let politicians know that there's people out there that care about these issues. So fundamentally, there's there's two different things going on here. There's there's sort of media regulations in regards to the old media, which is which is broadcast radio and television, and then there's the fight for new media. What's going on with the internet? And I, I think the fight for the end is, is fundamentally probably the most important because, you know, we haven't lost broadcast completely to the corporations yet, but it's just, you know it's essentially theirs. Uh, you know, when the licenses were handed out back in the 20s for radio and in the 40s and 50s for television, the public didn't have a seat at the table. The public interest wasn't there at all. Now the internet it's sort of grown up holistically, and the public it has a, has an equal seat at the table now. That could all change because the internet is now switching to broadband. What comes into your house is usually controlled by either one or two companies. Either your telephone company controls your DSL connection or your cable company controls your cable modem connection. They right now are pushing to change the rules of the game completely to where they can decide what type of content flows in and out of your home and can decide whose voice is louder than the others. So this is sort of surrounding the issue of net neutrality, which is one thing my group works on a lot. So 
you know, getting involved on all these issues that may seem very technical and may not seem very important is, is, is you know, extremely important to, to, to changing the media back to where it serves the public interest. And sort of the final third tier, I think, here is, is advocating for a better public media. Non-commercial media, especially on the radio and also on television, is very important uh, to keeping people informed in, in a sort of, you know, higher brow way or you know a less hyperbolic way than you often see uh, coming out of the corporate media. But public media is not very well supported in the U.S. If you compare it to some other countries like the U.K. or even Canada, Germany, their public media it has much more public support. Uh, so making sure that Congress doesn't cut off the funds for public public broadcasting is very important, but also trying to make sure that they change the funding mechanism to where public broadcasters don't have to come back every year with their handout, that there's some sort of long-term uh, funding mechanism for, for public broadcasters so they can be autonomous and, and not beholden to the purse strings of Congress. Those are the three main issues I think that people need to be aware of. And there's plenty of groups like Free Press that are out there working on these issues every day, and that they're trying to make it easier for the public to just take five minutes out of their day, read the headlines, send an email to a congressman, send an email to the FCC, uh, you know, go to a local organizing event and, and you know, speak out. These are the types of things that, that will eventually lead to change. It's not easy. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of hard work, but you know, it can be done. Are any of the presidential campaigns now, either on the Republican side or the Democratic side, is anybody making uh, radio station ownership or uh, broadcasting ownership consolidation and the fight against it, are, are any of them bringing this up as an issue? Well, not really. Um, in general, most of the Democratic candidates aren't too bad on the issue. Uh, like Hillary Clinton and Obama have come out uh, supporting the issue of net neutrality, which is a, which is a big deal. Uh, McCain is actually not so bad on the issue. At least he wasn't in the past so bad on the issue of media ownership. Uh, he's he's got some good platforms on some issues involving uh, spectrum allocation for for internet. Uh, but he sort of himself has become sort of the panderer-in-chief. Uh, last week he introduced a bill that actually seems to be in response to to the, the Center for American Progress and Free Press talk radio study. His bill basically says that the, the so-called fairness doctrine can't be brought back. This is, a, this is completely pandering to the base because in our report we never actually advocated for the fairness doctrine. And, and for those of you who listen are familiar, the fairness doctrine – was a rule on the books from 1949 to 1987, which basically said that broadcasters had the obligation to cover controversial issues and do it in a, in a balanced manner. Uh, that was gotten rid of in 87, and some people believe it led to the rise in, in right-wing talk radio. In the report, we actually looked into this, and we found that the rise in right-wing talk radio had a lot more to do with the overall consolidation of the media conglomeration that was brought about by the 96 Telecommunications Act and other deregulation, then it had to do with the, the loss of the Fairness Doctrine. We say that bringing them back the Fairness Doctrine is not the answer, but all the, all the, all the right-wing bloggers and, and, and a lot of their uh, radio compadres basically sounded the alarm saying that liberals were trying to bring back uh, the Fairness Doctrine, which led to McCain introducing this bill, which will go absolutely nowhere. It's just this sort of show of, of look here, right-wing, I'm, I'm, I'm behind you. Uh -huh. uh, when about two years ago he was actually arguing for some you know rollback of consolidation, which is what our our fundamental th uh, conclusion was in the report. So it's not a big issue among presidential candidates. We hope that it will be, uh, and you think they would latch onto it since most of the media coverage around them doesn't actually talk about their policy positions or, or anything of relevance. It's more about the horse race, and and we kind of wish that they would wake up and realize that and realize that if you change the media, then you may change 
how people uh, get involved in, in, in public citizenry and how they vote and, and how they actually feel about their government. But, you know, we're pushing them, uh, and that's definitely something you can do if you ever have a chance to write to a candidate or, or talk to a candidate, ask them about these issues, ask them about net neutrality, ask them about media consolidation, ask them about public broadcasting, get them on record and see what they say and press them on it if they, if they waffle, because it's important to, to let these candidates know that there's multiple issues out there that we care about, and, and this is fundamentally one of them. I think that one of the things that was really scaring folks on the left about this uh, emergence of uh, especially far right-wing talk radio was that they believed that uh, a truth about the United States was being revealed, that the United States is a predominantly uh, culturally conservative nation, that um, the voices that had been silenced in the past that are finally now being heard finally got the, the courage to be out there, the folks on the right wing. And so, it, it, you know, it made it seem like there was this either this revelation that this is what reality has been like all this time, but folks on the left just didn't know it was like that, or that there was a cultural shift moving to the right. But you say that it's not that. It's not that there was a cultural shift. It's not that there was a an emergence of a right wing or a, or a revelation that there's a new right wing. But in fact, it's you know government interference or lack of uh, enforcement that's kind of led to this. It's the way the market is structured that determines right wing radio content is basically what your report is saying. So is the battle of the airways, the radio airways right now, not won by ideas or talent, but determined by government regulations and which ones are enforced? Uh, I think it exactly is. I mean, the, the the perception that there's, you know, that right-wing radio is sort of a, a allowed the shift of, of the culture or has helped foster or has helped un- uncover or highlight the fact that we're a conservative country, I think is fundamentally mistaken. These people do just really well at self-promotion, and it, it, right-wing radio is, is sort of gives a, a large megaphone to the, to the angry white man and sometimes it's, it seems much bigger than it actually is. Uh, if you if you interview the people who actually listen to these these shows, they they fundamentally don't identify themselves as far right conservatives. You know, mostly they say they're center right or, or or moderate or even in some cases liberal. So it's it's not as if you know this is a reflection of who we are as a country. In order to 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 better have the airwaves reflect actually who we are as a country, we do have to return to to localism and media. We do have to break up these large conglomerates. You know, before the 1996 Telecommunications Act, Clear Channel owned 40 stations. A couple of years after it was passed, in the act that got rid of all these, uh, we got rid of national ownership caps. Clear Channel owned up to 1,200 stations. So, you know, we don't think this is healthy for for a medium such as, as broadcasting, which is fundamentally a local medium. Your signal is only going to travel for you know a short local distances, not nationwide. Even the biggest channels who who, who have 50,000 watt stations, their channels don't crouch. Their signals don't travel across the nation. It's fundamentally a local medium. People who listen to it are going to want some level of local content and some level of of a reflection of of their values in their local community. So we're not saying that there should be any kind of content police or anything like that. All we're saying is is that we think the media will better serve their local communities if it's in the hands of smaller local owners who live in their communities and and have uh, a greater sense of what they want and and who they are. Uh, One last question for you, Derek. We've been speaking with S. Derek Turner. <laughs> He's been on to talk to us about the study his group Free Press did with uh, the Center for American Progress. The name of the uh, study is The Structural Imbalance 
of Political Talk Radio. Uh, and one last question for you, Derek, and it's our question from hell. It's the question that we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. And, uh, well, this time it's about the organization that you did this report with. You are part of freepress.net, and people should check out uh, your website there as well as stopmedia.com. But you did this with an organization called the Center for American Progress. Is the Center for American Progress merely a front for the Democratic Party? Well, I mean, our relationship with the center was essentially uh, a scholarly relationship. They, we had actually released, or they knew we were working on a report uh, that we released called Off the Dial, which was a, the first ever census of the gender and race of radio station owners. So they were aware of that, and we'd worked with them in the past on such issues like uh, community internet projects and things like that. Uh, Free Press is, an, is a national nonpartisan organization. Uh, we don't take money from corporations. We don't endorse candidates. Uh, you know, we don't work with any particular party. We don't have an ideological bent. We we are an issue advocate organization. We advocate for a better public interest-oriented media system. The Center for American Progress. Yes, if you read their their blog, Think Progress, they do clearly have a a liberal inclination and a progressive inclination. They are nonpartisan. Uh, you know, and their their politics are what they are, and ours are what they are. I think the report speaks for itself. Um, we we. Wouldn't, we don't advocate for any type of speech on the radio. What we do is advocate for policies that are supported by many conservative Republicans. Trent Lott is a very out, outspoken person on the issue of having to roll back media consolidation. And he has uh, recently made comments to the effect of that, that talk radio, right-wing talk radio, is a little bit out of control. Uh, so, you know, this is, this, is, this is about policy. This is not about politics. And I, I think the report speaks for itself. Well, Derek, I really appreciate you being on the show this morning, and our listeners should uh, definitely check out your report because it's just uh, it's refreshing to find out that this it wasn't because of some huge right-wing shift all in the hinterland that we didn't know about. I'm very glad to hear that it, more, it has more to do with the uh, structure of the market than it has to do with the uh, feelings of Americans around the United States. I really appreciate you being on the radio show with us this morning, and people should check out your websites again, freepress.net and stopbigmedia.com. Thanks for being on the show. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Sure. This you is are here, and this is hell. Welcome back. If Derek's analysis from 2007 sounded to you, dear listeners, like it could have been recorded today, that's because the situation in political talk radio he describes has only gotten worse. The consolidation of the airwaves in a few hands with deep pockets going on back then is largely complete although I'm sure there's more they could do to hijack the public good that is the radio spectrum Derek's analysis suggested three ways to improve the airwaves and wrest control of them away from reactionaries with deep pockets one, to restore national caps on the ownership of commercial radio stations. Two, to ensure greater local accountability over radio licensing. And three, require commercial owners who fail to abide by enforceable public interest obligations, which by the way are technically part of their licensing, uh, to pay a fee to support public broadcasting. Last I checked, none of these reasonable, and I would argue, um, 
yeah. reformist solutions uh, have come to pass. This is indeed hell. If you appreciate hearing this sort of analysis on your radio or podcast listening device of choice, analysis that you will not hear on commercial radio, then uh, consider supporting This Is Hell however you can. You can buy our wonderful merch at thisishell.com. You you can subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon and gain access to a vast and growing repository of Chuck's musings and a treasure trove of archival interviews like the one you just heard. You can also spread the word about the show by sharing our content with your your friends, relatives, even enemies. However you support This Is Hell, you have our deep appreciation. Let us turn then to this week's question from hell. Listeners on Facebook have been having fun with this one. The question again is, what superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? What superpower do you hope Chuck has after his surgery? Over on Facebook, we currently have 10 responses without external equipment. Same as Bionic Bigfoot. I like Bionic Bigfoot. It is alliterative and it paints a great picture. Uh, Tom White, (laughs) anarchism. (laughs) Never thought of it as a superpower, but it could be a superpower for all humanity. Ray O, super immunity. To which Kelly H. replies, I read this as super immaturity, if that tells you anything about where my head is at. The great Rinaldo Migaldi, I don't know if this is a troll or a a earnest answer. Either way, it's great. He suggests 2020 vision. While Pete of Carrie's Lounge offers his response what superpower would Pete like to see Chuck emerge from surgery with a giant pile of money (laughs) that's a superpower isn't it certainly is especially if you see what the conservative right is doing with it by buying up all of the commercial radio stations and abusing the licensing Ezel S on Facebook hopes that Chuck will develop the ability to psychically torment billionaires, Henry Kissinger, and other fash into repentance. Go, Chuck. <laughs> Man. One can only hope. And two more responses. Matt L. answers extra limbs. <laughs> I, I can only imagine the amount of uh, gesticulating he could do with all those limbs uh, while I see him sharing his thoughts and questioning our, uh, our astute guests. And last, Fabio L., the ability to not miss his button. I'm not sure what that means, Fabio, but it sure 
Sounds like a good answer to me. I like this idea of <laughs> very minor specific superpowers. So that's all we have on Facebook. Thank you listeners for your responses. Once again, you can answer this week's question from hell on any of our social media. That is Facebook, Twitter, Discord. Or for those of you patrons out there, you can answer on Patreon as well. Remember listeners, patrons get first crack. They get the week's question from hell. Days earlier than the rest of you on the Thursday before the week even starts. Patreon gives you a little glimpse into the future at This Is Hell. So again, Hellions, delightful responses as always. I'll announce this week's Question From Hell winner in the next episode, where we will hear another interview from July 7th, 2007 in which Chuck and Jeremy Leeming discussed his article, Christian Reconstructionists are trying to take dominion in America, and they have powerful friends. At the time of the recording, Jeremy was a communications associate for Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. From what I understand, this organization is still going strong. You can learn more about them at au.org. That is two letters, A and U au.org these and the rest of the interviews i'll be sharing while chuck recovers from hernia surgery all come from the first decade of what we might uh, we certainly hope won't be but quite possibly will be uh, humanity's last millennium on earth before capitalist greed wipes out our species and many others along with us uh, from the globe more specifically, they were all recorded on or around July 4th, the Day of American Independence, as declared by elite revolutionaries we all know too well, despite the efforts of uh, many marginalized, especially to the historical record, uh, voices participating in the revolution who hoped it might be a more of a sort of leveling force that revolution was indeed a rich man's revolt but what do i know i'm just a historian in honor of america's birthday these interviews all drip with the sort of patriotism that you listeners have come to expect from the show next week the deep dive continues with interviews from a range of voices on Monday, July 3rd, we'll be hearing an interview recorded on the day after America's birthday, July 5th, 2008, when Rick Shankman joined Chuck. Rick is the author of Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter from Basic Books. The second chapter of which was excerpted at TomDispatch.com as the article, How Ignorant Are We? The Voters Choose, But on the Basis of What? Rick is an Emmy Award-winning investigative reporter, 
New York Times bestselling author, an associate professor of history at George Mason University, and is also the founder and editor of History News Network, a website that features articles by historians on current events. And listeners, you should check out HNN. It sounds nerdy. It is. Uh, historians hang out on there. Sometimes uh, things get a little, uh, little punchy in there. Uh, he also blogs at How Stupid. Our July 4th episode. Next week comes from July 4th, 2009. Live from London, Saskia Sassen is a professor of sociology and a member of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Saskia's most recent book is 2007's A Sociology of Globalization from Norton. She wrote, at the time, that week's open democracy piece, the New Executive Politics, A Democratic Challenge. Before that, she wrote April's, again from that year, Open Democracy article, Too Big to Save, The End of Financial Capitalism. And then finally, hopefully our last hiatus episode, also comes from that same show on July 4th, 2009. On Wednesday of next week, we'll hear from Chalmers Johnson, who wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, How to Deal with America's Empire of Bases, and May's Truth Dig, again, May 2009's Truth Dig piece, Chalmers Johnson on the Cost of Empire. Chalmers also wrote for Tom Dispatch, along with editor Tom Englehart, Article entitled, Economic Death Spiral at the Pentagon. Chalmers is president of the Japan Policy Research Institute and professor emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Chalmers wrote the trilogy that includes Nemesis, The Crisis of the American Republic from Metropolitan Books, Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, also from Metropolitan Books, and the Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic. So see what I mean, listeners? All of that sweet, gooey patriotism you've come to love from this show will be on full display as Chuck recovers from hernia surgery. In addition to... Our interview with Jeremy Leeming in the next episode. We'll always we'll also hear from longtime correspondent Jeff Dorchin in another moment of truth. In this installment, back two presidential elections ago, Jeff shared some warnings about Marianne Williamson, which now bear repeating and maybe uh, applying to RFK. Jeff's contributions are always evergreen, sometimes in very surprising ways. I will also read the rest of your responses to the question from hell and announce a winner. Filling in for Chuck until his return in a couple of weeks, I'm producer Will Ippen. Thank you for listening. 
Stay beautiful. Talk to you soon. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>